All right, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians, please. Which is where we're going to be continuing our series. We're in chapter 1. We're going to be reading this week from verse 15 to the end of verse 23. And if you'd like a title, if you're making notes, the title is A Prayer for Understanding. And let's read from verse 15 together. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he would work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, Lord, would you help me because I feel weak. Lord, I am weak. And so, Lord, would you make me strong in this moment? Lord, you know my care and affection for this local church. And so my eager desire is that they would hear you this morning, that you would minister to their souls. Holy Spirit, would you come and illuminate your word and help our eyes to be opened to the true knowledge of God, that we would grow in the knowledge of God, that we would be truly amazed. Lord, stagger us this morning with your spiritual blessings. Would we grow in our understanding of them? Would we deepen in our passion for them? Lord, help us by your abounding grace. Amen. So much of what I've learned about prayer, I've learned by really listening to other people. Growing up, I had a mum and dad who were Christians, and so I'd often hear them praying and, and listen to them praying. And, and one of the interesting things that always staggered me, even as a, as a young boy, was they talk to God as if they really know him, as if he's an intimate friend, as if he's a, a father that's right there that they're communicating to and talking to in great intimacy and care. As I got older then, I went to Cardiff to go to university, and I went along to home group for the first time. And there was a number of older folk in the home group that I'd been assigned to. And to just start hearing them pray, I found that not only did they have that intimacy, but they had that joining with a true depth of knowledge, a true depth of understanding of who God is. And I learned very quickly then how real deep knowledge of God can also fuel prayer, can't it? And when you hear people that have been a Christian many years, often as you hear them, you think, that's amazing. 
They're not only intimate with the Lord, they not only seem to know exactly who God is, as if He's right sitting next to them in their intimacy, but they also pray in reverence, they pray with biblical insight, and they pray prayers that are just wholehearted and dependent upon the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, today, in this text, we get to, once again, learn how to pray by listening into others. But this time, it isn't your mom or somebody that's just older than you in the Christian faith. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the one who got knocked off his horse. This is the one who heard Jesus communicating with him directly. This was the church planter of church planters as he plants church all around the world in so many different ways. And so as we start this text and as we just enter into this message together, here's what I want you to understand. And here's what I want you to go away with. If there's one thing that I think I want you to go home taking about what this text is about, it's this. Here in Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23, we find a prayer that is simply amazing. It is Paul sharing, because of his love for the flock, a desire that God would open up their eyes more and more to the true knowledge of him. And when we understand this prayer, when we understand what Paul is really doing, I believe we see that this prayer is a text that we would be wise to to imitate so that we too may have a knowledge of God in an experiential way and that our knowledge may be deepened all the more. That's what this text is about, that we would grow in our knowledge of God and that through prayer and crying out to grace from Him, we may know Him all the more. You see, Paul is without, without, uh, without doubt concerned about the Ephesians' heads. He wants things going into their heads. And so that's why he takes time in verses 1 through 3 for 14, talking to them about the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. He wants them to know and understand in their minds, you have been chosen, you have been forgiven, you have been redeemed, you have been adopted. Heaven is genuinely and incredibly your home. He wants them to know that God incredibly cares for them, He holds them, He has a relationship with Him, that through Jesus Christ, access to God has now been fully opened. He wants that to affect their heads. He wants them to understand the truth of what God has really done for them in their lives through Jesus Christ. And yet primarily, as you examine it, you realize primarily, He's not only intrigued to make sure it's going into their heads, primarily He wants it to go into their hearts. He wants them to feel this. He wants them to know this. He wants them to live in light of the truths that they have just that he's just been talking about. He desperately wants them to get it. And that's what you see in verses 15 through 17. He says, For this reason, or what reason? Well, let me explain. Because I have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He says, for this reason. Well, what reason? Well, he's just spent a great deal of time, as we saw last week, talking about the stage of wonders. He's taught us around all that God has done for us. You have been chosen. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted. Heaven is your home. For this reason... For the fact that these truths are indeed truths, I desperately desire for you to get it. I desire for you to know it, not only in your heads, but in your hearts. I want these things to function in your lives so that your lives can be changed, so that you can be humbled, so that you can be amazed, so that you can be assured. 
That's why he says, for this reason, referring back in so many ways to the whole premise of what he's just been talking about in verses 3 to 14. But it's not only that. He also desires them to get it because he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and he's heard of their love towards all the saints. See, make no mistake, Paul loves this local church, doesn't he? He feels for this local church. He's not just unengaged as if this is just a group of random people, a group of numbers, and just, oh, that's nice, but I'm on my way now, I've got to catch a ship. He, he feels for these people. And so here, as a pastor, he's coming alongside them and saying, guys, I love you. I want you to get it. I want you to know these truths. I want them to be living in your life. I want them to be burned into you as with a hot iron. I want you to understand who God really is. I want the Holy Spirit, by His amazing grace, to come into your life afresh and bring to life your spirit, that you may understand who God really is, that you may marvel at the spiritual blessings, and that you may be able to apply them to your lives and live in the good of that. That is what Paul is doing here. That's why he prays that their spirit may be enlightened. He's saying, Holy Spirit, come and affect their spirit. Make our eyes open to the glories of who you really are. And in this regard, as I've thought about this text this week, I thought, you know, I can relate to Paul in this regard. I'm not like Paul very much. There's many things that I'm nothing like Paul in, in, in any different way. For a start, they think he was bald, so that's, that's gone, but it's probably going to come. But I'm not like Paul in his character either. There's so many different things in his life, and you think, oh, Lord... I wish Sovereign Grace Church Sydney could have Paul. I wish they could enjoy him and who he is. And so there's many things that I'm not like Paul in, but in this regard, I can relate to him. See, in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. You want to know how this pastor feels about this local church? Here's how I feel. I never cease to give thanks to God for you. This isn't a job for me. This isn't just something where, oh, you know what? Why don't you go to Sydney and do this? <laughs> this isn't a job. This is my life. This is, this is what I feel God's called me to. But I don't just do it because your numbers. I'm very grateful to God for everybody that he is knitting into this church. You know, for the church planting team, more recently for the starting point troops, it's been pure joy and continues to be pure joy to, to serve you. And as I was aware, talking to the life groups this week as well, why is it that often you, you find out really what people think about you when you're dead? Have you noticed that? It's often at funerals that people say incredibly nice things, and you think, it's a shame you didn't communicate more of that while they were alive. I, I don't want to be like that. So I want you to know I, I love you guys, and I deeply care for you guys. I give thanks for the way you encourage me. I receive more encouragement in a week than probably many, many people receive in a lifetime. You know what I'm saying? I just get so much encouragement and care for you in the way you care for myself and my wife and my children. I love the way you serve. Just this morning, just, just thinking about this morning alone, Patrick Chavez and his children turn up at my house at 8 o'clock in the morning. I notice because I hear the garage door going up because I gave him a key. And all the stuff is being loaded for all the PA equipment into the back of the van. It then arrives here at half past 8 not just us, but there's three cars waiting to get in. It's all the people that serve you before you arrive. Everything gets set up. We have Ruth Dean's busy making things in there that people eat. I've noticed there's a lot of fruit. I've had a word with her about that. I do apologize. But for the rest of us, <laughs> for the rest of us, we enjoy the different things. And you think, thank God that 
But that's the way you serve. Maldine's her husband. Outside this morning with a Mac on and an umbrella welcoming people. And you think, Lord, how do I, how do I get to serve people like this? I love that. It's true greatness. It's biblically defined. The way people serve. We have an army of people out this morning serving our children. We have musicians turning up at what seems like the crack of dawn to get practicing. We have people on the PA making it all work and plugging it in. I have no gene in my body whatsoever that knows how to plug anything in or how anything works. But people know, and that's how we're able to, to function as a church. You serve incredibly in the way you go about your lives and the way you do the things that you do. I thank God for your example. Our first three weeks, we spent time just looking at what type of church we want to be. A church that loves the gospel, that knows the gospel, that applies the gospel, that proclaims the gospel. I have the privilege of serving a church that doesn't want to be like that. I have a church that is like that. Thank you for your example. Thank you for the people you are. You're teaching me all the time about what this really looks like. And I'm grateful to God for that. So in many ways for me, second only to being a husband to my wife and a father to my children, serving you is right next. I love it. And I always thank God for you in my prayers. I thank God for all the joy that I have in his presence because of you, because of the way you live your lives. So I can relate to Paul and the way he feels about these people. And likewise, then, I can relate to Paul in his desire, motivated by deep affection for them, motivated by love for them, motivated by care for them. I can understand then why he wants to grab them and say, guys, I want you to get it. I want you to understand these things. I don't just want you to know these truths and take them off and say, yes, I know that. I know all these things. No, I, I want them to know you. I don't want us just to hold to truths. I want these truths to hold us. See, keeping the main thing the main thing in many ways is, is a great principle. It's something we want to do. We want to brandish the gospel and keep it. But I'd put to you, once you really get the main thing, the main thing keeps you. It holds you. Once you are deeply amazed by the gospel, once you are deeply amazed that he chose you and forgave you and redeemed you and adopted you, you never move on because you're just amazed. I want you to be amazed. Paul wants you to be amazed. Paul wants this Ephesian church, whom he loves, to be affected. He wants them to get it. And so why does Paul pray? Because he loves them and because he desperately wants them to get it. He wants them to really know who God is, not only in their head, but in their hearts. And he wants them to know who God is in a way that it functions in their lives with amazement, with humility, with joy, with all that comes with that. And in verses 18, to 18 through 23 then, we see the content of Paul's prayer. So we've already had the headline, he wants them to know God, but then he spends time talking to them about what is it about God that I want you to know? Ephesians, I love you. So there's three things I want you to get. Well, the beauty of Paul is this is a divine prayer, right? This has been inspired by God. This isn't just a recording, historical data, that, oh, that Paul happened to say this. No, God has inspired Paul's prayer because although Paul is the author little a, God is the author capital A. So right here, we also have God communicating to us about his desire of what we would get too. Sovereign Grace Church Sydney. So what is it, Lord? What? What do you want us to get? Well, here's the first thing. 
Number one, the hope to which he has called us. Paul wants the Ephesian church, God wants us to get the hope to which he has called us. That's what we see in verses 17 through 18. It says that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? Number one, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. See, Paul first of all prays to God that the Ephesians' eyes might be opened to the truth and glories of the hope to which he has called us. See, the call of God very deliberately and intentionally takes us back to the very beginning of the start of our Christian lives. Okay? So whenever you read in the New Testament, calling, it's always referring us to that point of regeneration, that start of our Christian lives. Jeff Perswell who's the Dean of the Sovereign Grace Pastors College and my dear friend. He says, the first thing that Paul does in these verses is turn the Ephesians' eyes back to their salvation. That's what calling refers to. It is not just beckoning, hoping hoping some might respond. No, it is a divine summons by which he calls sinners from death into life, from darkness into light. If you are saved, then you too have been called. You have answered that irresistible, divine summons, and in sovereign grace, that's why you're here. That's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, isn't it? That's one of the areas, the truth that, yes, indeed, we chose God, but we were only able to do that because of a prior activity in our lives where He chose us. It's divine grace. It's sovereign grace. It's the incredible call of God. And what Paul is doing here is drawing attention to the hope of that calling. He doesn't just want to remind us that we've been called. He's already said that. He wants to remind us, what is the hope of that? Why have you been called? What exactly did God have in mind for you when he called you? You ever thought about that? The hope of your calling. When he saved you, what exactly did he have in mind for you? What is that hope? What, therefore, then, is the hope to which you've been called? John Stott, in his commentary, says, God's call was not a random or purposeless thing. He had a clear object in view when he called us. He called us to something and for something. And it is this truth, this hope, that Paul points us to in verse 18. So what's the hope of this call? What is it? Paul is crying out to God, Lord, give them a spirit of wisdom. Open their eyes that they may receive and understand the hope of their calling. What is the hope of this calling? Well, in many ways, it's what the New Testament then unpacks for us. This isn't hope as in the way we use it now in common English. Because when we say for hope, we're hoping for something. It's a bit like this, isn't it? I'm really hoping, you know, we might be able to pull it off. That's not the way it is in this text. Hope in this environment means a sure and certain hope. Something that is going to happen or has already happened. It is a hope in someone else who is not going to change, who is guaranteeing what we're asking for. What is the hope then of our call? Well, it's a relationship with God for a start. See, do you realize God is the gospel? He is the ultimate prize. Last week, we toured around a stage, did we not? The fact that He chose us. He forgave us. He redeemed us. He adopted us. Heaven is our home. They're great things. But they're not the point. The point is God. It's great to be forgiven of my sin. But the point of being forgiven of my sin is because I'm forgiven, I'm now able to be with God. It's great to be justified. It's great for God to see me like I've never sinned. 
But it's only great when I realize because of that, I can approach the throne of grace and have a relationship with God that I've always been made for, but could never have had without Jesus Christ's finished work in my life. Do you see that? God is the gospel. The prize is a relationship with God. All these things just bring us back to that relationship. A relationship which we were made for. A relationship in sin we rejected. But a relationship in Jesus Christ that we came back to again. The first part of the hope of our calling is God. It's the fact that we have been redeemed and reconciled to God. We haven't just been forgiven or justified or redeemed. The real joy is that access to God is now yours. But that's not all. You've also been set free from the penalty and power of sin. That is part of the hope of this calling. You could not have lived for Jesus Christ prior to salvation. You can't live for God. Everything we do, according to Isaiah, is like a filthy rag before the Lord. I cannot live for God. In chains, I am into my sin, and I'm freely following the power of the air. That's what the Bible portrays. But through Jesus Christ, our sin has been broken. Our chains have come off. And so we're not able to just have a relationship with God. We're actually now, for the first time in our lives, truly able to live for Him. Truly able to bring Him glory in our lives. Truly able to stand outside with an umbrella knowing I'm serving Jesus when I'm doing this. Truly able to play instruments saying, Lord, this is all yours. This is all for you. Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin in our lives and the penalty of sin. And because of that, we not only have access to God, but now we can truly live for Him. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom. Freedom to what? Freedom from your sin and freedom to now live for Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But even that's not all. We're not alone. The part of the hope of the calling is that we're brought into fellowship with one another. I think we're starting to get that, right? We will certainly be getting it through this book because we have not only been planned in eternity, it is all displayed in community. And as we examine this book, we'll find that we are not only gloriously saved, but we're gloriously joined. That's part of the hope of our calling. The fact that we're not saved alone, we're saved into the context of family, the context of community where we can live life together, where we can do the one another's of Scripture that are everywhere. We can carry one another's burdens. We can rejoice together. We can weep together. We can worship together. We can cry out to God together. We can serve one another. We can examine the Scripture and we realize part of the hope of this calling is not only that I'm saved and reconciled to God, not only that I can live for God, but I can live for God in the context of community, in the context of family. And the final part of the hope of that calling is that that community is not just temporary. One day we're all going home. This isn't it yet. Randy Alcorn once said, we were made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus Christ, and that place is heaven. This isn't it. This isn't what it's about. Sitting in Normanhurst High School with rain pouring down outside. Is this it? No. This is just an introduction, a prelude to what lies ahead. The hope of our call, in part, is heaven. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, listen, to an inheritance, your inheritance, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you ever think about that? Your prize, your inheritance, unfading, undefiled, 
imperishable, it's going to be yours because he's keeping it safe for you. He's holding it. He's never going to let it go. Paul is desperate that these guys then, as he preaches to them, don't just get it and say, yes, that's nice, isn't it wonderful? He wants them to get it. He wants them to be amazed and affected that I'm not home yet. See, this world can be tempting to live in it and for it, can it not? It can be tempted to be distracting. You know, I can drive along in my car. We did it the other day. I drive along in my car, and clearly the, the, the little section of the um, navigator system, which, for those of you who know me, realize I need a sat-nav to get home from here because things can happen. But the little section where I plugged that in, the fuse had gone. So I'm on my way home, and I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, this, this car's going to have to go in. That's going to cost a lot of money. I'm in trouble. Um, oh, my gosh, yeah. I, I'm going to have to try and get the pliers out and do it myself and the fuse. And, and, and before I knew it, I'm really like, quite disturbed about this, this fuse and how I'm going to fix it. So I, we get home and I said, oh, I'm going to have to try now. I'm gonna, I pull the pliers out. Oh, it's not working. I can't figure out which fuse it is. And I'm trying to change it. And you just think, this world tries to suck me in as if this is all there is and this is all that matters. But when you stop and consider, David, you have been redeemed to God. He is now your friend and your father, never letting you go. He has called you into his presence. He's called you into the context of community where you can do life together, where you can apply the gospel and love the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And son, heaven is your home. This isn't it. Don't get that involved here because heaven is your home. You're only going to be aliens and strangers here, really, if you truly understand it. Heaven is going to be your home, so you need to live for that day and not primarily this day. That helps to put my fuse situation into perspective. Suddenly, it's not the end of the world. Suddenly, you think, it's a fuse. Who cares? But have you ever faced that in your own life where you feel yourself getting sucked into just little bits and bobs of life? It's not about that. It's about heaven. It's about a day to come. And so Paul knows that. And so he appeals, Lord, would this congregation know you? And as part of them knowing you, would you, Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to their spirit? so that they may know the hope of their calling, that they may be amazed, and that they may truly let that function in their lives. That's not all. Number two, he also wants them to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And you have to watch carefully on this, because in verse 11, Paul spoke about an inheritance that we are going to receive. And it's easy to assume then that this verse refers to that, but it doesn't. Verse 11 certainly does talk about our inheritance. But if we read carefully, in verse 18, we see that Paul is something, talking about something different here. What does he say? Well, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance? God's. His. And where is his inheritance? Paul, am I getting it? Where is his inheritance? In us. In the saints. Paul draws on his Old Testament knowledge here. You see, Paul is well studied in Old Testament scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are repeatedly referred to as God's inheritance. As I say, for example, in Deuteronomy 4 verse 20, you read, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Another phrase that you may have heard, you, I'm sure you have, is that often, often in the Old Testament you come across the phrase God's treasured possession, his special possession. You ever heard that before? 
It runs at different points in the Old Testament. God's, God's special people, his, his chosen treasure. That word in the Hebrew is segular, and it refers basically to the private personal riches of a king. Not the riches of a kingdom, but the private personal riches of a specific king. His crowning jewels, if you will, the king's crowning jewels of his life, his greatest possession, the thing that he just loves. When you stop and let that sink in, and you realize Paul is saying then, we're his chosen treasure. You're his special treasure. You're his chosen treasure. And when you allow that to sink in, it's amazing. Jeff Perswell again says, because of God's choosing and redeeming and saving, we are now his special treasure, his inheritance. Through no merit of our own, not because God looked through the corridors of time and saw how cute and special and lovely we were. That's true, because we're not. No, despite our demerits and rebellion and sin, he chose to unite us with his son so that we now, so that now he sees us in Christ. And because we are now in Christ and have been united with Christ and have been granted all the privileges that are rightly Christ's, we are now God's special inheritance. Do you get that? To see that is, I think, to be staggered. Knowing our sin, knowing my sin, knowing your sin, knowing that we would rebel against God, knowing that if we were there, we would also be spitting on him and mocking him as he got crucified. Knowing that at the right time he called you, he chose you, he redeemed you. He died on a cross, his son died on a cross in your place so that you could be forgiven and redeemed and chosen, knowing that heaven is going to be your home. And now as he sings over you and as he declares his love for you, he says, you know what, guys, listen. You're my special treasures. You're my chosen possession. It's staggering, isn't it? Can you see then why Paul so desperately wants them to know it? He wants them to realize not only the hope of their calling, but he wants you to know, you want to know how God feels about you? Let this function in your lives. You're his segular. You're his treasured possession. But Lord, I'm not sure. I feel like he's tolerating me. I don't care what you feel like. Let's get back to truth. He declares that you're his secular. You're his chosen possession. It's like pulling a jewel out of a safe and the jewel, if it could talk, saying, I don't feel very special. It's like, I don't care what you feel like. This is just the truth. You're mine. Get over it. You know, God's desire is that he wants his, his not only lack of toleration towards us, but a profound love towards us to function that we may know he not only chose me, but he keeps me and he feels about me like he feels like a treasure. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it just wonderful as we examine here then Paul's pastoral care that God may open their eyes not only to the hope of their calling, but the riches of his glorious inheritance in them. That's the way God feels about you. You're his chosen special treasure. Paul then finally moves on to the greatness of his power. The third thing that he so wants them to get, which is why he's crying out to God that they would get it, is the greatness of his power. We read that in verse 19. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness 
of His power towards us who believe. Paul has already talked about the hope of their calling and his desire that they would get it. He's talked about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants them to know this is the way God feels about you. You are his chosen special treasure. And now in care, he turns their attention to, look, God not only chose you, God not only feels this way about you, but you need to understand he's incredibly powerful. And that power is pointing on your life. (laughs) That's staggering. If that is true, then that is simply amazing. Paul is drawing their attention here in an emphatic way to the incredible power of God. Actually, three times in the Greek, it mentions the word power. Three different words for power, which is why it doesn't read power every time. But three times, he's basically saying, you know, I want you to get the power of the power of the power. He just wants them to really get, he is a powerful God. It could be rendered this way. He could say the surpassing magnitude of God's power, the -the over-the-top massiveness of God's ability. He's basically saying to them, your God is incredibly powerful. The one who you have been reconciled to, the one who is singing over you as his treasured possession, he is incredibly powerful. He's omnipotent. He is abounding. He is unlimited in his worth and what he can do. And all of that power, if you could distill it into a small section and point it like an arrow, you need to understand Ephesians. It's pointing at you. It's pointing on your lives. It's pointing on who you are. In care and grace and mercy and power, it's pointing now at you. And if that's not enough, Paul then illustrates just how powerful this power is. I mean, check it out. Second part of verse 19. It begins to illustrate how powerful God is. He says, according to the working of his great power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And in this power, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You want to know how powerful God is? What how powerful this power is that is now pointed and marshaled and positioned onto your life? It's the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the power that saw his only son who was stone cold dead raised into life. It's the power that not even death could stand against. It's the power that defeated sin and satisfied God's wrath once and for all. It's a power that seated Christ into the heavenly places, the most incredible place of all, the very right hand of God. It's a power that has given Jesus a place of unparalleled honor and universal authority. It is a power that not only has he taken Jesus and risen him from the dead, he's put him at the right hand of God. He is seated there with a scepter in his hand where he now rules over the entire universe and cosmos in grace and wisdom and power, not only now, but for all eternity. Who for? For his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That power is the power that is positioning and pointing on your life. Do you ever think, Lord, where are you? I don't feel you're very powerful. Well, then reflect on this verse, because he's incredibly powerful. And that power is indeed pointed on your lives. This must have been good news to the Ephesians. See, the Ephesians lived in the center of cult activity. And so it would have been a very scary time 
to live. Imagine that. You rock up to downtown Sydney and everybody is into magic and occultism and astrology and they start to get saved but they are freaking out because they're thinking, man, if I reject my demonology that I've been a part of, what's going to happen? Are they going to get me? That was what was happening with the Ephesians. They were coming to know the Lord. And so if you read Acts 19, which I'd encourage you to do as you examine the church in Ephesus, you see folk getting saved. They're amazed by grace. And what they're actually doing is bringing out their magic books and their occult informations, and they're burning them in the street as a sign that they've become Christians. They're no longer going to pursue this in their lives, and they are now Jesus's. The problem is they're still fearful. Is there one who's more powerful than God? They didn't think there was, but they still felt that maybe demons could get them, or maybe Satan could get them, or things could go on in their lives. How comforting then when Paul says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm praying for you that you would understand the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that is now exalted to the heavenly realms with a scepter in his hand who now rules over your life and rules over all the universe. You give me a name that is more powerful than Jesus Christ. No demon, no Satan, no ghost. There is nothing in our lives that is more powerful than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is all-powerful, and his power is pointed on your lives. So don't fear, Ephesians. You have nothing to fear, because God's power is beyond all. And it is positioned on your lives. How encouraging that must have been for them, don't you think? Imagine it. Well, it should also be encouraging for us. Because folks, for us, in Sydney, 2,000 years on, we need have nothing to fear us either. There's nothing that needs to grip us with anxiety and fear in our lives. Because God is all-powerful. We need not fear financial collapse coming from the UK and dealing with a ministry which is profoundly in America. It can be a challenge in the UK and in America now with financial collapse. You watch your pension go down 30% a year and you think, well, what's going to happen? How am I going to make it? What am I going to do? For us, as we come over here and you're thinking, well, if we decide to live here long term, which would be our hope, what do we do with our house? Because our house is just going down in value all the time because the UK market, Lord, what do you do? We don't need to be fearful about it, but We can't be tempted to be fearful of our finances. You ever been fearful about disease, illness, or getting ill? Maybe a disease that runs through your family, and you think, I'm like a ticking time bomb here. It's only a matter of time before I get it. And then what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to cope. Fearful of the destiny and development of our children. Deep concern and anxiety of what if they don't get it? Or things that they're doing in their lives that you think, oh my gosh, how are we going to move them forward in this? And it starts to become a, a fear. A fear relationally, maybe in our single years and we desire to get married. And there just doesn't seem to be anybody on the scene and you think, Lord, how's this going to work? What, what's up with this? A fear maybe of pregnancy, a desire to get pregnant desire to have children, but up until now you're, you're trying with your husband or your wife, but it's just not, it's not happening as yet. There's no sign at all of a baby arriving, and it can be fearful as you think, is this it then? Are we just not going to have children? How are we going to cope with that? Maybe a fear of employment, employment that is unstable, or how are you going to manage if you lose your job? You have a family to look after. 
There are so many things in life that we can be fearful about. But the truth is, as Paul prays for them here, is as we examine Scripture, we have nothing to fear. Because you name it, we have a God who is powerful above and beyond all those things. He is incredible in his power. And that power is pointing on your life. Power to change circumstances in a moment. Do you realize that? Do you honestly think that a God who can raise Jesus from the dead can't change your circumstances? He's just not powerful enough. He can't quite do it. He can change your circumstances in a moment. He is a powerful, incredible God. He can give power for change. And if it not be His will for your good and for His glory not to change your circumstance, which does happen, He can give you power for sustaining grace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, Times in your life where you think, Lord, are, are you there? And then as you cry out to him for grace, you feel a peace that surpasses understanding. It doesn't even make sense to you, but you know he's ministering in my life right now. He's changing me. He's, he's with me. He's walking this through with me in my life. God is incredibly powerful, and we have nothing to fear Because any fear is always going to be trumped by the power and majesty of God, a power that can change your circumstances, and a power that if it be His will and for His glory and your good, not to change the circumstances, power for sustaining grace that can change and affect your lives. Paul knew that himself only too well with his thought in the flesh. He asked time and time again, Lord, you do take it away from me. God says, no, son. For my glory and your good, you're going to have it. But I will give you sustaining grace. Because my grace is sufficient for you. That's the power of God. That's who he is. And so when all said and done, this is quite a good prayer, isn't it? When all said and done, as you examine this text, you realize that Paul, with deep affection, is crying out to God for grace for the Ephesian church, that they may truly know him better, not only in head, but in heart, that they may experience God, that they may know him and who he is that they may know the hope to which he has called them, that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that they may know the greatness of his power. And as such, I believe that here in this text, we find a prayer that if we were wise, we too would imitate, so that we too, Lord, may know, give us grace to know how amazing you are, the knowledge of you. May I sense that in my heart. May I know these truths and may they function in my life. And so if you're a parent here, mums and dads, I want to encourage you. What do you pray for the most about your children? Is it their education? Is it that they don't have any friends and you just want them to get friends? Is it their sport? Because you realize, unfortunately, little Johnny's got two left feet and he really wants to play football. What, What do you pray for them about? I urge you. Let this prayer go above all other prayers. Education really is not that important. Sports, not that important. A lot of the relationships that we can be in fear of what if they don't have, they're not as important as we think. But this is very important. Lord, would you help me and would you open the eyes of my children to know you, to know who you are, to know how glorious you are and know what you've done for them. Husbands and wives, as you pray for your spouses, and I'd encourage you to pray for your spouses, pray this. Lord, open my wife's eyes all the more to how amazing you are, 
to the hope to which you've called her, to the glories of your inheritance, that she would know how you feel about it. And Lord, to the power of you, so that as she walks through her day, she would know you're with her, and your power that raised your son from the dead is positioned on her life. Lord, open our eyes to those things. If you're in a life group in this local church, or you're on starting point, pray for those around you. Pray that we would be a church that get it, that God would minister to, that we would be affected in truth to our hearts, to the core of our being, and that we would live in light of that. Pray for me in that. Please pray for me in that, that God would continue to open my eyes increasingly more to the glories of who he is and to how glorious he is. And you need to know I'm praying for you in that too. That's my prayer for you. It's Paul's. That God in his grace would give us a gift of wisdom and of revelation that our eyes may be increasingly open to who God is, how incredible his call is, how incredible you are to him as the riches of his inheritance, and how incredible his power is that's positioned on your life. Would we all then, as we apply that, and cry out to God with this prayer in mind, would we be a local church who truly is amazed by grace, amazed by God, or would our lives be changed all the more because of it? Amen? It would be easy to sing a song, but we're not going to, because the way we apply this text is to pray. So let's stand together, and I'm going to pray for you. Well, Lord, how kind you are to allow us the privilege of walking through our Christian lives, not alone, but in the context of family. That is a huge gift of grace. And would we never go tired? Would we, would we never be unaffected as we walk through the doors into Sovereign Grace Church? Would we always be affected by those around us that you've brought into our lives? for our good and for your glory. And Lord, I pray for this local church. You know I pray in private, but now I pray in public. Lord, please open our eyes as a family to the glories of all you are. Lord, open our eyes that we may know you more. Holy Spirit, would you affect our spirits that we may have the gift of wisdom and revelation to behold the Lord all the more. Father, help us to examine and see the hope to which you've called us. Would those spiritual blessings not just be truths in our minds, but would they be delights in our hearts? That we would be amazed that we are forgiven and adopted, that we, that we were chosen, that we're redeemed, that heaven is our home. Lord, would we be amazed that through Jesus we have now full access to you, a situation that will never change. Lord, would we be freshly amazed and humbled as we consider how you feel about us. Us. Us, your inheritance. Lord, would that truth amaze our hearts as we consider how you feel about us. Not because of our past, but because of our present, as you see us clothed in the righteousness of your Son. And Lord, would you amaze us at your power, Lord, as we walk through trials, you said man is born to trouble. 
You said, as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Things happen in our lives. And Lord, as those things happen, for the folks that are experiencing that right now, and for the rest of us, knowing that those things will await, because that is part of life, would we never lose sight of your power, your greatness, your greatness to change circumstances, and your greatness to sustain us in circumstances. Lord, open the eyes of this congregation, and with the effect be increasing worship and amazement and joy in you, Lord, for your glory. Amen.